A British Airways BAC-111 is on its way out of the UK on its way to Spain, but they don't get far. How did poor maintenance practice cause this plane to make an emergency landing in Southampton? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And today we have... Leo! Hey. He's back! He's back! For round two. Round there's, two. <laughs> there's some parallels he'll get to be involved in. It's weird, and it's British Airways. <laughs> it is. Ah. Also, uh, just so you know, everyone, Leo is the drummer who's on our... Theme song? Theme song. Theme song, yeah. Forgot to mention that it's last that time. Yeah, yeah, that Leo. He, yeah. You played a, a cajon. Yes, a cajon, which is a box that you just sit on and play drums. Yep. Yes. <laughs> it really is just a box, but it is a fancy box it's that a is a drum. Box. Okay. Uh, thanks to Liz and Brendan, not this Brendan, different Brendan, for becoming patrons. Spelled yes. the same way. Thank you so much. Also, quick note, if any of you decide to become patrons at the end of the month, because we found out this happens... That you will get charged twice in a week, depending on when you do your patronage. If we see that, we will refund you for the previous month. Because it's not fair. Once you get charged for the next month. Because that happened to one of our patrons, and we were like, that's not fair. We're going to refund you your money so that you don't have that problem of it double charging you in a week that's so stupid yeah because it charges you at the beginning of the month the next month so if you start like at the very end of a month so you charge you right then and there for that month but then it will charge you again for the next month first day of that next month yeah and that could be in the same week yeah so just so you know if we see that we will refund you the money for your first pledge because we realized that that patreon man like why <laughs> just yeah scoop it into the next month but you know whatever yeah. so that's just a quick public announcement this week is the week we are doing the listener stories so remember it's your weather or rainy stories and i think that's all the housekeeping we have yeah so what are we covering today nick today we are covering british airways flight 5390 Thanks to Helen, Will, and Chris. Ah, wow, this was a triple recommendation. Yeah. yeah okay, that, that makes a lot of sense because this is actually a pretty famous incident. And a lot of people probably already know what's about to happen. But for them, those of you that don't, <clears throat> Leo. Leo. Yes. <laughs> you in for a ride. So, yeah, thank you to those patrons for recommending this episode. So this happened on July 10th of 1990. This was a BAC-111-500, an airplane we've never talked about before. The 111 was a British-built, very common, uh, actually mid-size, mid-to-small-size airliner. And it was a workhorse. It was known as the Jeep of the Skies. It had a very good safety record, and it was a workhorse airplane. This one in particular had the tail number of Golf-Bravo-Juliet-Romeo-Tango. And it was named the County of South Glamorgan. That's when they named Glamorgan? airplanes. Yeah, they, they named all the airplanes, so this one had a name too. This was to be a flight from Birmingham, England, to Malaga, Spain. The captain for this flight was to be Timothy Tim Lancaster. He's 42 years old. He had 11,050 hours total, so a bit of experience, with 1,075 hours on the type, the BAC-111. The first officer was Alistair... Atchison, he was 39 years old. He had 7,500 hours, so also a decent amount of experience, with 1,100 hours on the type. For this flight, there were to be 81 passengers and 6 crew, so that includes 4 cabin crew. All of the crew knew each other except the first officer, who had driven down from Manchester for the flight. He didn't normally operate out of Birmingham, but was needed for this leg. Most passengers were going on vacation or were doing some form of family-related travel. It was to be a little over two-hour flight from Birmingham to Malaga. The flight departed Birmingham at 8.20 a.m. with the first officer as the pilot flying for the takeoff. Once airborne, the captain became the pilot flying in accordance with normal operating procedures. I thought that was actually kind of interesting because we don't hear many airlines that do that, and any more British Airways I don't think does. It's pretty normal that whoever is pilot flying at the beginning of the leg is 
still the pilot flying at the end of the leg. Yeah. Yep. So I, I, th- I wonder when that changed. I don't know. I don't know, to be honest. But it is interesting that they, at the time, in 1990, they allowed for that that pilot flying change in the know. middle of flight. What would be the difference if you just kept the same pilot from the beginning? It just keeps the responsibilities, responsibilities the, same. the same the whole flight. So whoever's pilot flying has a certain set of responsibilities. Pilot monitoring has a certain set of responsibilities. And they maintain those responsibilities. So t- generally, pilot monitoring runs the checklists. Gotcha. And generally does radio calls. Pilot flying, quite literally, just does all the flying actions. Hmm. Is in charge of the physical airplane's movements. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for you to switch that. Chinese fire drill. Kinda, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time... That's this a good was, way to put it. Yeah. At the time, this was normal operating procedure for British Airways, at least on the BAC-111. So this... Uh, this was a normal change, and the responsibility change was probably taught to them, so this was not an abnormal occurrence at all. The sort of exception is when you have a relief crew. So, like, if you have, like, a freaking 13-hour flight, if the first crew will take off, then the relief crew will take over as soon as they're at cruising altitude, and then the original crew will come back for the landing. Mm. Yeah. Gotcha. So they get to rest, sleep, whatever... So they can do all the hard stuff. Pretty much. Yeah. 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 While the other pilots can put their feet up on the dash. and Don't, don't, <laughs> do, so, don't do that. We found out. Yeah. No, but... <laughs> Miranda can't see over the dash, so no. imagine how high that dash ah, is. You can't yeah. just... Gotcha. It's much higher than the dash in your It'd driving. be a bit no. of a stretch. Like, yeah, I can't a see over a Cessna dash. Yeah. Imagine a 737. Yeah. Or anything bigger than that. <laughs> yeah. Which is fair. why I can't be a commercial pilot. Fair. As the plane was climbing out, the flight was transferred to a couple of different air traffic controller frequencies before being instructed to climb to 14,000 feet. The air traffic controller then gave the flight several heading changes before being instructed to maintain a heading of 195, or 195 degrees. They were then cleared to climb to flight level 230, or 23,000 feet. The flight crew released their shoulder harnesses around this time as they were only as they're only required to have them on for takeoff and landing. And actually this is pretty much still standard. You really only need those shoulder harnesses for takeoff and landing. You still have a lap belt. Well, because most things that happen happen during takeoff or landing. Right, exactly. So that's pretty not cruise flight. Although yeah. we've covered incidents yep. where it yeah. happened in cruise flight. Yes. But yes, it normally is a takeoff and landing is when most accidents occur. So, yep, take off. You can relax a bit, take those shoulder harnesses off. The cabin crew lead popped into the cockpit and asked the flight crew if they wanted some tea. They agreed. They're British. They're yeah. British. <laughs> I was going to say tea. That sounds weird. Yeah, it's their coffee in the morning. But yeah. Do they have a trolley car in the back, too? <laughs> <laughs> Anything from the trolley, there? <laughs> Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) At 8.33 a.m., 13 minutes into the flight, the cabin crew were up and preparing to serve a meal to the passengers, as well as drinks, And as the airplane was climbing through 17,300 feet. At that moment, there was an enormous bang heard, and the fuselage immediately filled with condensation mist, or fog. Now, you might be familiar with this from another recent episode. Literally last week. Yeah. No, two weeks ago. Two JK. weeks ago. Two weeks ago. It's the one that released this week, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The cabin crew thought briefly that it was a bomb, but then they knew immediately that the airplane had experienced an explosive decompression. This was one of the main signs. First of all, the bang. Second of all, the fog. Fog, yeah. Because you have a sudden change in pressure, right? So, sudden change in pressure, what do we know about high pressure, low pressure meeting? Causes condensation. So. That's why it's currently snowing. Yep. Yeah, I did not know that. The airplane was suddenly in a dive and was beginning to buffet from speed and air currents. So the airplane was shaking. Buffeting is shaking, basically. Vibrating. Yeah, vibrating of the... The airframe. (laughs) Well, it's more the the airfoil. The surfaces of the wing. Control surfaces of the airplane start buffeting. One of the cockpit windows was gone, and the captain had been partially sucked out of the window. The cockpit oh door God. was also blown open. Yeah. What? <laughs> yes. It, this is about to get really crazy. It's already a little crazy. It is. 
The cockpit door was also blown open and off of its hinges until it lay across the radio and the navigation console, which is in the center between the two pilots. Yeah, so it blew inward, not outward. Yep, it blew inward. One of the cabin crew members immediately rushed into the flight deck and grabbed the captain around his waist to hold on to him. The crew were concerned that the captain's body would come loose and be ingested into one of the plane's engines, which would severely worsen the already dramatic and crazy situation happening. Yeah, and his whole situation. That wouldn't be fun to just been torn up into pieces by a jet engine. No. No. So he didn't fly out entirely because his feet caught on the... The yoke. The yoke. Yes. Another cabin crew member ran in, stamped on the stuck cockpit door, breaking it into several pieces, and then removing the door from the flight deck and placed it in a lavatory. Here's a reminder that the doors were made of different things yes. then than they are now. Yes, this isn't. This now we have now. armored doors due to the 9/11 incidents, and they don't this, do this. They don't. Do, they wouldn't even get sucked in. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So if you're wondering, like, how is that a thing? Because they were made of different materials back then mm-hmm. than they are now. Yeah, nobody would be cartoonishly flying out of a plane today. <laughs> Hopefully not. No. <laughs> The other two cabin crew members rushed through the cabin, ensuring that the passengers had their seatbelts buckled, and to reassure them, they then took their emergency stations. The captain had impacted the control column with force, which disengaged the autopilot. The control column was stuck forward by the captain's feet. This had caused the airplane to dive. Nose dive, yeah. (laughs) And the speed had increased to nearly 400 miles an hour, which is a bit fast. Very fast. Wow. Yes. The first officer immediately grabbed the controls and fought to regain stability and manual control. He was able to get control of the throttles first, then the cabin crew members were able to unwedge the captain's feet from the control column. The first officer then put the plane in a rapid descent down to 11,000 feet, which he managed to get to in two and a half minutes, by the way. Which is very impressive. It's pretty, it's pretty quick. The airplane was diving through busy airspace, however. The airspeed indicator was also in the red zone, which is beyond the plane's... Structural capacity. Structural limits. So So busy, like, air traffic? Yes. Yes. We'll talk about that in a minute. So they're diving through busy airspace, overspeeding. Yeah. And you only have one person in the cockpit doing everything. Because... One and a half. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of? Yeah. But the first officer was then in charge of radio calls, checklists, and flying the airplane. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. And in an emergency situation. There's... I mean, the other guy was trying with his foot. He was <laughs> going the wrong direction. <laughs> just going down. the wrong direction. I guess. Well, and then the, the cabin crew are holding on to his body, assuming he's dead because reasons, and so they don't want him to just fly into the engine. We'll get more right. into that. The first officer engaged the autopilot again, then made a distress call to the air traffic controller, but he was not able to hear the response from the air traffic controllers due to the loud sound of rushing air coming into the cockpit. Yeah. No, really. No, duh. The nature of the issue was not understood well by the air traffic controllers due to some delay in the two-way communication. Therefore, they did not notify the operator, or British Airways, immediately as required by the Manual of Air Traffic Services, which is the standard operating procedures basically for air traffic controllers in the uk i'm sorry we've got some problems like priorities yeah so they didn't notify british airways right away because they didn't quite understand what was going on because of this the initiation of the british airways emergency procedure information center plan was delayed yes that is a thing it's a mouthful yes just a little bit The lead cabin crew member who had removed the cockpit door had returned to the flight deck to assist the other cabin crew member in restraining the captain. He hooked his arm through the jump seat, which the through the seat belts, which was behind the captain's seat, and he restrained both the captain and the other crew member. The captain was situated such that his back was pressed against the outside of the airplane across the top of the airplane. The two cabin crew attempted to pull the captain back into the flight deck but they were unable to. They could see his torso and head through the left direct vision window, or the left window, and but the heavy wind of the slipstream kept him pressed against the outside of the airplane, so they just couldn't pull against that wind. There's a cold air rushing up your nose, too. That doesn't sound like fun. As the airplane leveled off and began to slow, the captain's body slid from the top down to the left side of the outside of the airplane, where his face was hitting the window. 
The cabin crew could see his eyes open, but he appeared lifeless and he never blinked. Another cabin crew member entered the cockpit and relieved the crew member that initially entered the cockpit and grabbed the captain. That initial crew member needed the relief, too, because their arm had been gripping the captain long enough that it was getting weak due to frostbite and bruising and bleeding from the window frame. Oh, wow. The relief crew member grabbed the captain's right leg, which had been wedged between the cockpit combing, yes, that is a word, and the control column, basically the top of the control panel and the control column. His left leg was wedged against the seat cushion of the captain's seat. The crew member strapped himself into the left jump seat behind the captain's seat and held both the captain's ankles, but the captain had slipped another six to eight inches out of the window in the process of the swap from one crew member to the other. Oh, boy. The crew thought about letting the captain's body go, but the first officer instructed them not to. For a few reasons. One, morality. Two, he was worried about the structures of the airplane. He was worried that it could damage the leading edge of the wing. He was worried that it, that the captain's body could end up in the engine. And these, these are all worse situations than what they're already dealing with. As the plane looped around the airspace for London Heathrow, one of the busiest airports in the world, the first officer was finally able to hear the air traffic controller's communication come back to him. All of this occurred while the first officer had managed to get the airplane down to 10,000 feet and slowed the airplane down to about 150 knots. The first officer requested the nearest airport, and the air traffic controller instructed them to go to Southampton, but the first officer requested Gatwick because he was much more familiar with that airport. The air traffic controller, however, instructed them to continue to Southampton, even though they didn't have the charts in the cockpit for Southampton. The first officer requested radar vectors for Southampton from the air traffic controller, as he didn't have charts. As the flight passed through 5,500 feet, the air traffic controller then asked about the number of passengers on board, and if the pressurization issue was the only problem, as that is the only thing he had reported, the first officer had reported yet. The first officer then told the air traffic controller that the captain was partially out of the airplane, and he believed that he was dead. The air traffic controller was in disbelief, but acknowledged this transmission. The air traffic controller then contacted all emergency services to respond to, the, to Southampton for the emergency airplane. The first officer asked if Southampton was acceptable for a BAC-111. The air traffic controller confirmed and said that he would then run the numbers and get back to him. So it basically said, yes, a BAC-111 can land there, but let me run your numbers. The first officer said that they would be good as long as there was 2,500 meters of landing space. But then the air traffic controller said that neither Southampton nor Bournemouth, the alternate, had that distance. There was only 1,800 meters available. Oh, boy. This worried the first officer as he could not dump fuel over land, and they were heavy with fuel. They were still at the beginning of their flight. The airplane was turned toward Southampton Airport anyways. The air traffic controller then passed the flight off to the approach frequency for Southampton. The first officer lowered the landing gear and flaps and continued the approach to Southampton regardless of the weight concerns. The first officer turned on the auxiliary power unit for landing. This is an electric generator, basically. The first officer maneuvered the plane onto a visual approach for runway 02 and reported the runway in sight. The air traffic controller then went silent, allowing them to proceed to the runway without any interruption. They were then cleared to land. At 8.55 a.m., 32 minutes after they had taken off, the airplane completed a successful landing and came to a stop on the runway. The first officers then shut down the two engines but left the APU running to allow electrical power to keep running for certain systems. Almost immediately, passengers were disembarked from the front and rear air stairs on the airplane. The airport and local fire services rushed to help pull the limp body of the captain back into the cockpit and then rush him off the plane into a hospital. No passengers were injured and one crew member had cuts and bruising to their arm from the window frame, but all other crew members were uninjured. This investigation was performed by the Air Accidents Investigation Branch, or the AAIB, of the United Kingdom. First and foremost in their analysis, investigators gave big kudos to the flight and cabin crew, and I want to read a direct quote real quick. Quote, The crew were faced with an instantaneous and unforeseen emergency. The combined actions of the co-pilot and cabin crew successfully averted what could have been a major catastrophe. The fact that all those on board the aircraft survived is a tribute to their quick thinking and perseverance in the face of a shocking experience. Did you catch that? They got some kind of medal for winning tug-of-war against God. No. <laughs> no one died. 
including the captain. He was still alive. Wow. So he's just cartoonishly hanging out of a plane by his feet. People are grabbing at him, holding him. And he remembers parts of it. Oh, man. He before he remembers before he passed out, from what I remember from the, the air disasters episode, or the air and crash investigations, whichever one, that. he had turned his head before he blacked out to where oxygen was coming up his nose so that he was still breathing, even though he was severely frostbitten yeah. and in freezing temperatures with low amounts of oxygen. Yeah. And going fast. That is sharp air to be breathing. The captain survived the whole ordeal and had suffered bone fractures in his right arm and wrist, a broken left thumb, bruising, frostbite, and shock. He had been unconscious for most of the ordeal and did not remember most of what happened. He had survived because he was facing he was facing forward, which allowed air to enter his lungs, allowing him to breathe, even when unconscious. He, however, did return to flying... After five months, he retired from British Airways in 2003 and then went on to EasyJet and then retired from airline flying entirely in 2008. How ecstatic must he have been when they changed the doors? (laughs) (laughs) I would have been hooting and hollering. But the the door door wasn't the the reason why he came out. The windscreen. The windshield. The windshield came off off. on his side. So he... Because he wasn't wearing his harness, got sucked out of the aircraft. And they said specifically because he was of such light build that he came free of his lap belt, too. Wow. So Crazy sh**, am I right? <laughs> yeah. So they took ta- the time to praise the first officer in particular. Because he had more than a thousand hours on this particular plane, he was able to handle it on his own and performed all operations and checklists from memory, and very importantly, was able to recover from his reported disorientation. So this is where it's a good thing to have good training, right? Because when you go into autopilot, you automatically know what to do. Unlike some crashes we have covered where, you know, pilots can't figure out what happens next Mm -hmm. because they don't have good enough training. And it's not particularly the pilot's fault. But they don't have good enough training to know what comes next. This first officer had good enough training that he didn't need a checklist. He didn't need to look at anything. He just was like, okay, and I'll he figure was, it out. And he was able to use instruments to orient himself, which is also a developed skill. Yes. Because at some point you don't have a horizon to tell you which way is up and down. Right. Left, right, etc. He was able to get out of the disorientation that he himself said he had and recovered. He was also faced with the difficult choice between donning his oxygen mask or being able to yell instructions at the cabin crew who were holding on to the captain. Investigators determined that he made the better decision given the altitude. If this had happened at anything above 20,000 feet, the better option would have been breathing with an oxygen mask. Yeah. Yeah. So, now, why did this horrible thing happen in the first place? Don't worry, it doesn't take... The investigators long, and they aren't very verbose in this section of the report. In a structural failure such as this, there are normally two options for investigation, design failure or maintenance failure. Given that this hadn't happened before, investigators dove into the maintenance logs and procedures, and oh boy, buckle up, though it didn't do the captain much good. (laughs) That was in poor taste. (laughs) It actually would have, but... Well, he was like in his normal. lap. He was in his lap belt. He was in his lap he belt. Was pulled out of it. But he had but, also loosened his lap belt. By the way. Oh. Well, oh. Well. That didn't oh, help. I thought he was just on slim fast. <laughs> <laughs> he might have also been on slim fast. <laughs> so the windscreen is secured with ninety bolts, a very standard practice across the board in aviation. Now, the investigators didn't say explicitly in the report what raised their suspicions, but they became suspicious about the bolts themselves. I suspect it's because they could still see the bolts in the first officer's side. When replacing a windscreen, it is required to replace most of the bolts due to normal wear and tear to be judged by the shift maintenance manager, and in this case, replacement performed by the shift maintenance manager. Well, in the previous replacement, A211 7D bolts had been used, which are not the correct bolt, but obviously worked since they lasted for four years before the windscreen needed to be replaced. So when replacing it, 
Maintenance looked for more of the same bolt, but found they didn't have enough. So instead, they, by eye and touch, physically matched the bolt to others in the carousel and used those. Which, by the way, is horrible maintenance practice. Yes. Sure, by eye they matched, but A211-7Ds and whatever they were matched to were smaller than the required A211-8D. So that was problem number one. And it's particularly infuriating because maintenance literally had the illustrated parts catalog accessible in the hangar to identify the parts, but chose not to use it. That's a, that's a boo-hoo huh. on, on them. Yeah. So I'm just going to continue listing things that were not done correctly. Maintenance arbitrarily decided to use A211-9Ds in the corners of the windscreen. The bolts were over-torqued, according to the maintenance manual. Here's one that will make Nick mad, because it's literally his job. Quote, an uncontrolled torque-limiting screwdriver was set up outside the calibration room. End quote. <laughs> that is literally my whole job. I know. <laughs> the storekeeper warned that A211-8D bolts were needed for the windscreen, but was ignored. Wow. No one seemed to care that the smaller bolts didn't fill the countersink in the bolt hole quite right. It was just a little small, and so there was space for a bigger bolt, and they're like, ah, it's fine. Additionally, maintenance knew that they were using A211-7Ds next to A211-8Ds and didn't question it. Here's another quote. The difference between the bolt thread stripping in slash through the nut and the torque-limiting screwdriver breaking was not recognized even though the bihexagonal socket and screwdriver bit located by his left hand were still rotating. However, the high residual torque of the particular screwdriver resulted in a less positive break, and although the brake torque was never achieved with the eight UNC bolts, it was when setting the screwdriver and when installing the fairing. This screwdriver, on reaching the set torque, may have felt more like the thread stripping than one with a more snappy break. Does that make... Can you translate that? He used all the wrong Lego pieces and all the wrong tools and didn't go back that eight steps to fix it. And it should have felt wrong when he was torquing it. Yeah, so when you torque most torque wrenches, torque screwdrivers, things of the like, they have a click, a solid click. I mean, it's a solid click. And so you know when they break over. That means you've hit the torque limit that you've set on the torque wrench, torque screwdriver. Well, in this case, this one that he was using didn't have that solid click. So he didn't know when he broke over and he went too far because of that. Wow. Because it was an uncontrolled torque cool. screwdriver. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let me like sum this up for everybody. We have a person who's using the wrong bolts for the windscreen. And is over-torquing them using a screwdriver that they shouldn't be using? Yeah. So, not only is it bad maintenance practice to use the wrong parts, <laughs> by the way, but also the fact that you're using the wrong tool for the wrong parts for that, like, makes you wonder, what else are you just overlooking that you think it's okay to do? And that key word is overlook. So, in a lot of maintenance of aviation, things don't get overlooked because there's a secondary inspection. Their manager will inspect what will inspect whatever work they did. The windscreen replacement was not considered a vital point task, so it did not require a secondary inspection by the maintenance manager. Except like if something happens to it, people just get sucked out of the airplane. Yes. No yes, biggie. This is true. Do you have why they determined it was the window? I mean, not just the fact that it was gone, but why specifically <laughs> they went to that? No. Do you know when it was replaced? Oh, it was. this was the first flight since the windscreen was replaced. It was replaced the night before. It was in the log <sighs> from the night before. So, that's why they went immediately to the maintenance. They yep. went, what you do? And they looked and they went, you screwed up. Yeah. What the heck? <laughs> so it was ultimately determined that of the 90 bolts, 84 were the wrong size bolt and were too small. Wow. 
And of the six that were correct, one was too short. Oh, yeah. And it so, just takes one. Just takes one. Well, we proved that in the last episode. Yeah. But more to the point, because they were too small, they didn't actually hold the windscreen in the uh, fuselage. Yeah. It was basically just kind of floating on top until there was enough pr- pressure and then it blew off. Yeah, because the pressure inside was greater than the pressure outside. Yep. There is one point that was kind of buried in the analysis and made to not seem like that big of a deal, but I personally think it's, it's kind of... It's a really big deal. <laughs> As someone who requires this particular tool, I take great offense to it being like kind of tucked under a bit. The shift maintenance manager needed glasses for farsightedness, meaning he needed glasses to read things up close and identify parts up close, and he wasn't wearing them. Oh, Velma. <laughs> Yeah. That was terrible, but my glasses. great. I can't see without my glasses. <laughs> Where are my glasses? Yeah. So the thing that really bothers me it is, at least in the United States, and I'm sure other places too, you can't drive if you need corrective lenses. You also can't fly unless you need corrective lenses. Well, if you're not wearing them, that is. Well, yes. So right? like on my driver's license... It says, I need to be wearing corrective lenses but in if, order to drive. If you know that you have really bad eyesight and you know you have to, and you know you have to use, you know, glasses to see. Why wouldn't you use Why them? aren't you wearing them? I don't, I don't get it. I don't either. And <laughs> yeah, I wear glasses. Thing. I, no. I so can't. not only is he trying to feel like, first of all, I feel like all bolts feel the same. Right. Yes and no. Eh. I mean, there's noticeable differences if you look at them. But not only are you doing it by feel, but you can't actually see the part. And you're not looking at the catalog. And even if you were looking at the catalog, you wouldn't be able to read it. (laughs) And they're matching the wrong bolt to the wrong bolt. Yeah. So. (laughs) All around, this was just not right from the get-go. So I'm going to read the small quote from the analysis portion. Quote, the lack of corrective glasses cannot account for the majority of the errors made that night, but may have subconsciously influenced the shift maintenance manager in short-circuiting some of the procedures which rely on adequate eyesight. It is recommended that the CAA should recognize the need for the use of corrective glasses if prescribed in association with the undertaking of aircraft engineering tasks, end quote. Duh. Yeah. I feel, I feel like, like I yeah. feel like that's pretty self-explanatory. That's pretty important. That's for sure. If it keeps you from reading and your whole job is to read diagrams and make sure you do it right. It's a bit problematic. And seeing yeah. just in general. Yeah, that too. Also important. Like, come on, dude. Not only did you not do this right, but you also can't see anything. Well, and knowing how some of our parents struggle to read things up close, I'm like, you're basically riveting this windscreen on without glasses. That's dangerous to yourself. Yeah. Never mind this poor captain who could have died, who could have easily died. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick brick break. Break. And then we're going to come back with the findings and etc. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Okay, so findings, which, fun fact, is me this week. Woo! Woo! So, a few of these I'm not going to read for obvious reasons, because... This was fine, and this one's fine, yeah. and this one's fine. The crew was properly blah, 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 and the plane was blah, 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 and the takeoff and blah, blah, blah. Okay, yeah. let's yeah. skip on to the negative stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> kind of. Yeah, a little yeah. bit. Okay. Let's make your day horrible. <laughs> God. Okay, so... This is why we keep him around. Yeah, because Leo puts everything into perspective. (laughs) So the investigators found that whilst climbing through 17,300 feet pressure altitude and on a heading of 195 degrees mercury, the left windscreen was blown out of its frame under the influence of cabin air pressure. Thanks. 
the commander was sucked partially out of the windscreen or the captain. Uh, windscreen yeah, aperture. Him, they called him the commander all yeah. through the entire report. And blown backwards over the flight deck roof. He was restrained from further egress by the cabin staff who held on to him until after the aircraft had landed. Which, honestly, good on them because that's not easy to do. Yeah, no kidding. Well, and then they acted fast. Yes, yes they did. The co-pilot suffered a degree of disorientation, but he was able to regain control of the aircraft and start an immediate descent. Again, we talked about that. Good on him, because that's yeah. not easy to do. No. The remaining crew and passengers suffered no ill effects from the rapid decompression, or depressurization, and lack of oxygen. It has been calculated that the cabin altitude was unlikely to have been greater than 13,000 to 13,500 feet, achieved within two seconds after the loss of cabin pressure. So they were pretty close to breathable altitude. I mean, they probably had a bit of altitude sickness, like yeah. like you do when you go climb a fourteener. Usually, it comes unless with you were just, born in Colorado, it usually it just comes with like minor headache, minor nausea at that altitude with a sudden pressure change. Some people said that they could feel like a thud in their gut, basically, mm. which yeah. is kind of true because you think, I mean, your body is also under a certain amount of pressure, yeah, and the pressure outside of that suddenly changed. Did so you is... guys ever do the thing in middle school with the water bottle, the plastic water bottle? You would twist it unscrew the lid a little bit, and then squeeze as hard as you can, and it would make a loud popping noise and fire the cap at someone? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's this plane. <laughs> yeah. Why kind did, of, yeah. Why did everyone do this except me? <laughs> I had brothers. That, I. You didn't have brothers in school with you at the same time until high school. We had one year where all three of us were in elementary school at once. Yeah. That was a yeah, wild year. Yeah, that's not elementary school <laughs> no. stuff, though. That's definitely middle school bullshit. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Middle school is a whole... Yeah. Okay. The left windscreen had been replaced and the task certified by the same shift maintenance manager with the appropriate British Airways authorisa authorization. Sorry, they use an S instead of a Z. <laughs> Yes. 27 hours before the accident flight, and the aircraft had not flown since its replacement. So they wouldn't have known it. this was an issue because they didn't fly until literally that flight. flight. Yep. The replacement windscreen had been installed with 84 bolts, whose diameters were approximately 0.026 of an inch below the diameters of the specified bolts, and 6 bolts, which were of the correct diameter, but 0.1 of an inch too short. So that's a great time. Yeah, fun time. Great time. We, we just partying here. Uh, just kidding. This is horrible. Okay. <sighs> the windscreen fitting process was characterized by a series of poor work practices, poor judgments, and perceptual errors, each one of which eroded the factors of safety built into the method of operation pro proclamated. I have no idea. I've never seen that word in my life. Promulgated? 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 By British Airways. <laughs> That's an interesting... I've never seen that word before. Okay. A series of cues were available to the ship maintenance manager to draw attention to the use of incorrect bolts, but all went unnoticed or unheeded. Although an independent final inspection would have had a high probability of detecting the error, the task of the windscreen installation was not designated a vital point, and consequently no duplicate inspection was called for and none took place. Which... Windscreens are very important. I'm kind of surprised they aren't a vital point. The work of the ship maintenance manager was not subject to review by another manager, and thus there was no backstop with any chance of detecting his errors. Errors that were made more likely by the sleep deprivation and circadian effects associated with the end of the first night shift. So, we didn't talk about that, but apparently uh, this occurred at night, right, during... A weird time, which we've talked about with pilots before. When you interrupt your circadian rhythm, you are fatigued at to a degree. Yeah. Now, sometimes you have sleep and stuff beforehand. But take Nick's dad, for example. Hello. Yes. <laughs> he, Whenever he comes to visit, his circadian rhythm is always jacked up. Because he's used to staying up at night and not 
not staying up during the day. So when he's here and he's up during the day and he has to sleep at night, his circadian rhythm's all messed up. And so when that happens, you know, sometimes you just... You're it makes little, you foggy. Yeah, it makes you when you know when you're like a little too tired and you're like I can function but only a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, you should that. not work on airplanes like that. No, you shouldn't. No. It's a bad idea. The practices employed by the shift maintenance manager which permitted such errors were not considered to be one-offs but were sim- symptomatic of a longer-term failure on his part to observe the prog Promulgated, promulgated procedures. Promulgated procedures. So promulgate is to promote or make widely known. Okay. I guess that makes sense. The British Airways local management, product supplies, and quality audits had not detected the application of inadequate standards by the shift maintenance manager because they did not monitor directly the working practices of the shift maintenance managers. So it... Sounds like the visits by any kind of oversight, auditors, etc. didn't actually watch them work. And or didn't check the work. Yeah. Which is a big problem (laughs) when you're talking about doing maintenance work. Because maintenance work can literally be the reason a plane collapses in the middle of the sky. (laughs) One thing goes wrong with maintenance and it's over. Clearly. Yeah. Right. Refer to this episode and, and last, last episode. episode. Yeah. Last episode we did uh, a single washer caused an airplane to um melt. Oh. <laughs> melt? Yes. Melt. melt. What? Yeah. Listen to that episode next week. Right. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Everyone lived. Yeah. Yeah. But the littlest thing can cause the worst error. I think we're... I think we are three out of four episodes here where everybody lived. Turkish didn't. Yeah, that's why I say three out of four. Oh, I got you. Got There's it. one in the middle. Yeah, you're right. Three but out of four flights. Three out of five flights, then. What? Because Air, Air France, France, American. Oh, then four out of five flights. Windscreen replacement task may have been unique in that it alone could accommodate the errors associated with its fitment such that they were exposed so dramatically the first time that the windscreen was called upon to resist cabin pressure, which I'm, I'm sure was talking about the fact that they used the wrong bolts to begin with. The, the point that they're trying to make is that this is the only part this could have ever happened on. Yes, it would not have happened to any other part. The CAA supervisory visit was superficial and, as such, did not monitor the working practices of shift maintenance managers. You seeing a, a trend here? They're not getting, like, looked in on. No one's checking what nobody, they're doing. Nobody respects the windshield, man. Yeah. <laughs> and who knows what else they, they screwed up, right? I mean, if you're not, if you're consistently not doing great work, but no one's checking your work... This is symptomatic of a bigger systemic problem. Yes. Look at me using big words. Good words. Big wrinkle brain. That's those SAT words. (laughs) (laughs) That. (laughs) The British Airways local product supplies at Birmingham did not provide an independent assessment of standards as they were carried out by the person who had direct managerial responsibility for the tasks. Literature circulated by British Airways stressed the need for open reporting through QMDRs. However, a number of the maintenance managers indicated that they felt more comfortable with the E-1022 ground occurrence report form, which they were particularly familiar, finding it a more direct and responsive reporting system. So, if you don't know, a lot of maintenance areas have reporting not just maintenance, but... I mean, pilots have it. Yeah. Crews have it. It's basically, when you know that there's something wrong going on... You report it. You can yeah, report, you report it, it safely and somewhat anonymously so that you can't be pinpointed as a whistleblower, quote-unquote, so you don't lose your job, basically. But it's good for people to use those forms because then the company knows, like, hey, you should check in on this. And I didn't read this part in the report, but it sounds like... They had implemented a new particular form and no one was using it because they liked the old one. Right. Pretty much. This has actually happened in the past, too. More recently with 
a lot of the airline mergers is like you get these two airlines come in. One uses an older form. One uses a newer form. All the guys that use the older form are like, this is way better. We're going to keep using this. But the airline's on the new form. Yeah. So anymore, there's procedures to kind of wean those people off of those things. But from what I know, from what I've heard, it is a tough task when they're mindset on one yeah. old form. The shift maintenance manager required mild corrective lenses to read small print or figures, but did not use his glasses whilst performing the windscreen replacement. Again, they seem to have, like Chrissy said, seem to not have a big deal on this, but it's a pretty big deal. If you need glasses and you know you need glasses to read for your job, you should be using them. Yeah, he didn't respect his windshields. <laughs> yeah. That disrespect, windshield disrespect, and anyway. <laughs> Following receipt of the co-pilot's distress message, or the, the first officer, and when two-way communication had been reestablished, ATC facilitated diversion of the flight to Southampton Airport. The nature of the emergency was never fully appreciated by the LATCC. This sounds like the air traffic control center. Yes, this yeah. is the air traffic control center that was handling the flight when the emergency happened. Which, by the way, is a big deal. Because this was a big deal. There was someone hanging out the front window. Well, yep. and granted, they didn't get the full message the first time. Right. Yes. However, whenever there's an explosive decompression like this, it's a big deal because flights have to make sure they get down to a certain altitude and then get on the ground. Oh, and they still should have seen the airplane diving on right. radar. And that should have been a big red flag. And they just didn't seem to think it was a big deal. The Bristol sector controller's training in the handling of emergency situations was probably inadequate. Which, like, that's kind of a big deal. <laughs> probably inadequate. That's a hell of a grade. Yeah. <laughs> what grade is that? A, a C minus? D plus. Probably. Yeah. So it's kind of passing, but not really. Which... Isn't great, by the way. <laughs> no. <laughs> you at, at a control center should never be working off of a D plus. Yeah. That's no. not great. That's, by the way, if you don't know, if you're in college, at least in the United States, D is failing. There's no D that exists. It's either a C or an F. Oh, you get a D plus in um, the one class you failed, but you failed it and then you have to retake it and get right. a B minus. <clears throat> so you can get a D, but it's a failing grade. It's not passing. Unlike in high school, at least in the States. Like I said, uh, some other places, that's not the case. But All right, last finding. The recovery to Southampton was managed effectively by the co-pilot, who was assisted by the Southampton zone controller. Which, good for him, because that's not easy to do when there's a lot of wind coming in the front window. You're the only one flying the plane. And you're also yeah. in charge of talking to ATC. <laughs> that is fair. That's a lot. They don't have a probable cause. They have causal factors. So the first one, a safety critical task not identified as a vital point was undertaken by one individual who also carried total responsibility for the quality achieved and the installation was not tested until the aircraft was airborne on a passenger carrying flight. Like they're lucky this didn't wasn't worse than it was. Yeah, so I was going to talk about this a little bit, but... Basically, every time you have to do one of these window replacements anymore, you have to do a pressure check usually on the airplane. You mean so that the windscreen doesn't blow out? Typically. That would suck if that did happen usually, while you were testing. It's usually part of the procedures to replace windows on most airplanes these days is like, pressure check. Make sure it doesn't. this doesn't happen. Yeah. It's so pretty, people it's, don't die. Yeah, it's a pretty simple procedure. They usually just have a, a timed uh, yeah. gauge. That tells them how quickly they lose pressure. They bring the airplane to pressure and let it release. If it goes down in a certain amount of time and it's within tolerance, and if you use good, eight, pressurized. If you used 84 of the wrong bolts... Um, it would depressurize pretty quickly. Or the windscreen would blow off. Yes, usually. But usually with the ground pressure check, it doesn't get to that high a pressure. Uh, it it would, sounded really dramatic. I know. But, but they would still be able to determine that it was out of tolerance, that something was really wrong because the, it would have decreased pressure too quickly. I so know. it was bleeding pressure. I just had a cartoon in my head. I know. <laughs> you can still keep that cartoon in your head. Thank From you. From what I've heard about a rapid depressurization, even on the ground during tests, from what I know, 
That is also a horrifying prospect. Because so, I have heard stories. It's not a cartoon. It's real. Yeah, it's pretty awful. Okay. Do, do, do. Number two. The shift maintenance manager's potential to achieve quality in the windscreen fitting process was eroded by his inadequate care, poor trade practices, failure to adhere to company standards, and use of unsuitable equipment, which were judged sub- symptomatic of a larger term failure by him to observe the pro- prom- promulgated promulgated thank you procedures. That was a little bit of a pew 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 pew. Oh no, yes. they they completely put this on him. Well, because it was on him. <laughs> You used the wrong bolts, and you made sure it didn't, like, and nobody you, checked it. And you over-torqued fair, it, and... To be fair, no one checked it, right? If it if they had checked it, they would have found that he used the wrong Which bolts. Which is a systemic problem. Right. But he should have known that he should have looked up the proper voltage. And if they didn't have any, then the plane was not suitable for flight. Is voltage a word? I was about to say, what is this voltage I word you say? I made it a word. You're welcome. That's fine. Okay, and the last one for probable causal factors, excuse me, not probable cause. The British Airways local management, product samples, and quality audits had not detected the existence of inadequate standards employed by the shift maintenance manager because they did not monitor directly the working practices of the shift maintenance managers. So they were like, you didn't audit the people doing the actual work. So I mean, you went, you just didn't look. Look. Yeah. Uh, we went there, we rifled through some papers and called it a day. Pretty much. And Bad. that's not good. Alright, so we're going on to safety recommendations. I'm going to read all of these because I find them to be pretty important. Investigators recommended. The CAA should examine the applicability of self-certification to aircraft engineering, safety, critical tasks following which the components or systems are cleared for service without functional checks. Such a review should include the interpretation of single mall assembly within the context of vital points, and the requirements which include a waiver making the definition of vital points non-mandatory for aircraft with a maximum takeoff weight authorized of over 5,700 kilograms, which were manufactured in accordance with the type certificate issued prior to January 1st of 1986. So it's, it's basically saying that the CAA should examine whether or not there should be any instance where you are certifying your own work. Right. Yes. And if any part should be considered not a vital point. Right. To be fair, if anything affects the performance of the aircraft, it, sh- it is a vital point. Even some stuff that doesn't. Well, most things are. Right. If you think about it, almost anything on the outside of the aircraft should be considered a vital point because at any point if any of the any of the things come off the outside, something is wrong. Well, and then many things on the inside too, like oxygen masks, uh fire detectors. Yeah. Trying to think of all the other things inside a plane we've covered. Like making sure the seats don't collapse, making sure that you know, overhead bins don't fall off the top of the aircraft. I mean, it, it, this can go on and on and on, right? Point is, those might not be necessarily necessary to be in place in order to fly the plane. But it should always be double-checked. Yes. Work should always be double-checked. And so this recommendation is saying evaluate what you say shouldn't have a second check. Because right. it probably needs it. Right. They recommended British Airways should review their quality assurance system and the relative roles of the E1022s and the QMDRs be clarified, and they should continue to educate and encourage their engineers to provide feedback from the shop floor. So making sure they're not using just one form to report, but using both, and making sure that British Airways is looking at both. Well, and I think more to the point is making sure that engineers are actually using them. Yeah, it's important. If you see something, say something. Right? In all walks of life. They recommended British Airways should review the need to introduce job descriptions slash terms of reference for engineering grades, including shift, maintenance manager, and above. I thought this was interesting because to hear that a shift maintenance manager was doing the windscreen replacement, I was like, why? What? Why? They should be reviewing 
the work of someone else doing it. A technician should be doing the work. This is true. I mean, but shift managers do get involved if there is a large amount of work happening. But he did it by himself. Yes, I get it. I mean, that's that's still not entirely impossible. I mean, shift managers might do work, say, they're doing a large check on an airplane. You have most of your technicians checking airframe and engines, and a window needs replaced. Well... That's a pretty critical task, but it can be done by one person. Yeah. He could do it while the others are doing all the rest of the jobs because they need the work. They need the help. And then he'll still have to check everything else, and he'll still have to be checked on his work. That's standard practice. But But point is, he didn't have a job description, it sounds like. So... Yeah. I mean, if this was just literally he just went out and did it by himself, didn't check it, anything like that, like, that's, that's a whole different situation. It is recommended that British Airways should review the product sample procedure with a view to achieving an independent assessment of standards and conduct an in-depth audit into the work practices at Birmingham. So making sure that that specific maintenance facility is following the quality procedures that they set out as a company to have. They recommend the CAA should review the purpose and scope of the F017 or I7 supervisory visit. So... Audits. Yeah. Yep. They recommend the CAA should consider the need for the periodic training and testing of engineers, which is important in any aspect. In any industry. Training is important. Training also always changes, right? And it saves lives. And you learn new things. You need to train on those things. And sometimes you need to just review good quality assessment, right? I remember in college when I had um, an event coordinator job, we constantly had meetings to make sure everyone understood, you know, this is what needs to happen and this is how we deal with customers, et cetera, et cetera. And this is what's changing this month because X, Y, and Z. Right. So you need to make sure when stuff changes or just a review. Sometimes people just need a reminder that you need to do your job better. It happens. Yep. Especially in those meetings. (laughs) (laughs) They recommended the CAA should recognize the need for the use of corrective glasses if prescribed in association with the undertaking of aircraft engineering tasks. I don't know how we can get these audited, but I want it audited. Like... It's like when you get a your driver's license, at least in the States, like I said. You get your vision checked, and then they're like, okay, whenever you drive a car, you need to use corrective lenses. So I can tell you that a lot of companies in aviation in the United States bring uh, third parties in. Like they have like the RVs and stuff that have these test facilities in them for hearing and sight Mm -hmm. and they bring them in usually either once a year once every other year and test them they do it for us too so that's not so much my point it's more of making sure that once you're prescribed glasses that you're actually wearing them using them yes and i get that and that's kind of hard to regulate it is depending on the person right and like yeah managers changing and and upper people changing and all that stuff but you should also know yourself but i feel like as a manager for example you should know you should have a way of knowing my employees john jill and jack need to wear glasses and i have to make sure that they're wearing their glasses when they're working so i don't know about all companies in aviation but typically at companies like what i work at our safety team would have that information and would be in charge of making sure that each member that is supposed to have certain requirements are following those. Yeah. So that's more of my point. Yeah. Well, cause it's important, you know, when you can't see, obviously y- you need to be able to see to do maintenance work. Yeah. It's a no, big deal. It is it's just super obvious. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Sorry. I'm only being a huge tickler about it because I have to wear glasses. Yeah. Well, no, it's important. <laughs> it's very it important. If you need glasses to drive a car or fly a plane, you also need glasses to be able to see stuff to fix a plane. That would be like me being an air traffic controller and not wearing my nearsighted glasses. Right. Then you wouldn't be able to see the radar. That's just bad. <laughs> that is just bad. You just see glowing lights. <laughs> well, so I can see up close. I could see that. It's like... They're supposed to be an airplane, and I... They're sky. Yep. They're sky. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, and last recommendation, and then I'm going to go over some stuff that happened after this incident. 
the they recommended the CAA should ensure that prior to the issue of an ATC rating, a candidate shall undergo an approved course, which includes training in both the theoretical and practical handling of emergency situations. This training should then be enhanced at the validation stage and later by regular continuation and refresher exercises. So making sure ATC knows what to do when there's an uh, emergency. Because we came across one of those where ATC did not know what to do. And it wasn't good. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so a little bit about what happened after this incident. Okay, so awards, first and foremost. The first officer and crew members, Susan and Nigel, those are the names of the two that were holding the captain in primarily, were awarded the Queen's Commendation for Valuable Service in the Air. The first officer was also rewarded with the Polaris Award for his ability and heroism. He did a really good freaking job. He did. And it was interesting because in the episode they kind of depict it, but all the other crew members didn't really know him and they all knew each other, so they trusted each other. But there's this one guy that now they don't know that they have to put their he lives also hands wasn't interviewed. Their lives in his hands. You he know, refused it's crazy. to be interviewed for this for the episode. Mm-hmm. He's probably tired I of it. Why. Okay, and then afterwards, mm-hmm. the aircraft was repaired and returned to service with British Airways till 1993, then operated under Jero. Ger- International and was scrapped in 2001. Jaro, Jaro. It's pretty crazy that the airplane actually was repaired and returned to service because that airplane was oversped, which means it was beyond its structural limits. So it would have had to go through an insane inspection to make sure that nothing was going to fall apart after Well, because, like, you can crack wing spars. Yeah, and it went through buffeting. It went through all these things the airplane, I mean... To some extent, it's designed to do, but you start pushing those limits, and it's like, well, this airplane could be trash. Right. Granted, the same thing happened, and actually, this is um, timely. Today, that we're recording, tomorrow, that we're from when we're recording, I don't remember, is the anniversary of FedEx Flight 705, which also oversped and also buffeted and also returned to service. Yep. So, I, I mean, think that was today. But, yeah, mind whatever. you, there are plenty of instances i.e. Lockheed, when they <laughs> built a brand new version of a... That seven, wasn't bitter. <laughs> they built a brand new version of a C-130 um, just a few years ago, and then uh, they were performing some test maneuvers and proceeded to mistakenly invert it, and Oops. they had to trash a $1 billion airplane. Oof. Yeah, that's... Uh, that was bitter. Yeah. So, it's it's more the concept of like it, it, it but they did the right thing because it wasn't intentional it was part of tests it might have been a mistake it might have been something that happened to the airplane regardless they trashed the airplane because they went beyond the structural limitations of the airplane right and they knew it so they it wasn't really worth the inspection either they would have had to basically rebuild that airplane from the ground up even though the airplane landed safely so we already talked about what happened to Lancaster, the captain, um, afterward. He actually recovered in less than five months, returned to flying. He retired from British Airways, went to EasyJet, and then in 2008 fully retired. And then, uh, let's see, Atchison, which was the first officer, retired from British Airways sort- shortly after the incident. But he joined Jet2.com and flew with them until he officially retired in June of 2015. Well, congratulations on flew, retirement. Yeah, he flew a long time. He did. And I don't blame him for... Leaving. Leaving. Yeah. <laughs> because when something like this happens and it's catastrophic, uh, which for him, being the sole person who could save that aircraft... <laughs> is a lot of pressure. And he did. But that's a lot of pressure. And probably and, a lot of trauma and a lot of therapy. Yeah, it was a lot of trauma, that's for sure. So... I mean, do I blame him for leaving? No. <laughs> no. Good for him to still fly afterwards, because some people probably wouldn't even fly after that. And uh, like I said, he retired in 2015. He didn't get interviewed a lot for this. He didn't want to be interviewed. I don't and, blame him. 
Yeah, it's that's a lot of you're already under a bunch of pressure when that's happening, and then people want to ask you a bunch of questions, and you really don't want to relive it. So, ask you about the from trauma, me. things like that, and he just yeah. He probably he might have had PTSD. Probably had PTSD, which is horrifying in and of itself. <laughs> it is. So I understand why he decided to leave and why he decided not to give a lot of interviews about his experience. Yeah. Yeah. Well. That was British Airways Flight 5390. Thanks, Leo, for joining us. Do you have any questions, commentary, no, concerns? No, not really. This was fun. Weird. Yeah, really right. weird. <laughs> two two kind of crazy British Airways incidents you've been on. Yeah. Very unique incidents. Do you like being on the weird ones? Yeah, but now if I ever got the chance to fly British, British Airways, Airways. I, have a, I have a complex now. <laughs> I have a complex. A little different airline now than it was then. Well, both of them landed and nobody died. Yeah, that's good. So there, there you, you seem go. unimpressed. It's it's close. We've we've come across many that a lot of people died. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, if anything, it does show that the pilots they have trained are incredible. That the training and the CRM of the pilots is on point, yep. and that like we talked about, the first officer made the right choice in not putting on his, his oxygen mask. Or the investigators, you know, made that yeah. decision. But to shout at the... Because you have to with their strength rushing in the windscreen. Well, and if you don't, if you have your oxygen mask on, you can't shout at them. Right. Like... Yep. Gotta pick one. So, I mean, that was great CRM on his part. Like, I, I think most of the... We haven't covered a lot of British Airways stuff, but all the ones we have, CRM really hasn't been an issue. Or, Which, or rather, it's been very, very good CRM. Right. Like, extraordinary CRM. Yeah. Like, they know what to do, and they're trained on what to do, and, and they chill. can work together as a team, which is what should happen in the yep. cockpit. So good on British Airways for having good CRM training, and good training overall. Yep. Yes. Not great on maintenance stuff, for this one specifically. Yeah. yeah. So. These days are actually heralded as one of the best... One of the best airlines for maintenance in the industry. Because they have to deal with a lot of different types of airplanes. Although they're weaning a lot of the old ones out now. But uh, in particular, they have been maintaining... They're the only airline that's really been maintaining their A380s through the whole thing. They've been sending them in for like $10 million C-checks and A-checks. And everything while they're not flying. Well, good for you. Good for them. Because they still want to use them for one. Thank you, British Airways, for... Keeping the A380 alive. And, well, and being a good airline. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're doing their due diligence. That's good. All right, friends. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to all our patrons and our new patrons. Thanks you... to Leo for joining us. Of, of course. course. <laughs> yeah, that. And it, again, if you have any questions for us apart from, I mean, you don't have to ask the questions. We do have a listener question. We have to wait for Brendan to be on because it's for him. Yeah. We get a listener question, and they ain't even for us. <laughs> Which is okay. okay. It's I'm pretty sure it's about his private pilot's license. So. It is. But if you have any questions for us, apart from that, that you don't want us to answer on air, remember you can always email us, info at heartlandingspodcast.com. Check out all the stuff on the website that is amazing and awesome, because I'm in charge of the website, and I'm awesome, so thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. No ego beep, there. That was Miranda's horn, but beep, she beep. did it. <laughs> uh, no ego there. Nope. Absolutely not. Um, if you, again... Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, friends, and have a great week, and we'll catch you next week. Keep your speed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast, and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by all three of us. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.